Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. to the Inspired Evolution and it is such a treat to be here today. I actually cannot confess how excited I am to have this particular speaker here today. For those that don't know, it's Stephen Jenkinson. Um, He's an author, a speaker and he's the founder of Orphan Wisdom Um, and somehow, someway, he's a cultural activist and, you know, it's painstakingly obvious when you hear him talk um, but when you think about the work that he's doing and the stuff that he's talking about, a cultural activist is, you know, it's it's interesting that we need activism in the space of, you know, what we're going to dive into today. Um, yeah, so welcome, Stephen. How are you? Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm very good and uh, very pleased to be asked to join you. <laughs> it's an absolute treat to have you here. I'd love to, um, I'd love to dive into a bit of um, just maybe a little bit of context going into you've worked a lot with um, in your past with people that are basically transitioning over, people that are, are dying. And how did that come to be? How did I end up in the in that business? You mean? Yeah, <laughs> well, you call it the death trade, which is a whole the, new coin term, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know anyone else who calls it that, but uh, I'm I'm fond of it, and it's a perfectly apt and judicious uh, rendering of the actual enterprise. This, that's for sure. Well, you know, anyone who speaks with authority about one's own life is uh, has been reading the wrong mail or something, because. You should take a knee before your own life. It's the truth we're known and, and uh, admit to a kind of amateur status regarding how things came to be as they are. And, uh, you know, so with that in mind, I can give you some of the biographical details that uh, the allegations of how it came to pass. It's really very simple. I didn't know there was such a thing as a death trade. I obviously knew at, in, in the level that everyone knows that people die and, and they die in other people's care and uh, 
then those people die too, and um, round and round it goes. But I, I wasn't really alert to the fact that there was an entire enterprise that was devoted entirely to, as it turned out, seeing to it that people didn't really have to die if they weren't so inclined. And um, I was approached by a woman who knew me well at the time, and she was persuaded of my aptness for such an undertaking. I was underpersuaded in the extreme because she wanted me to join the hospital staff. And I knew this much about myself then and now that I'm not really, um, I'm not really a corporate guy. I don't, I just don't play well in the sandbox, you know, and you might as well know this about yourself. There's no sense being foolish in your sixties as, as to what your, what your inclinations are. And I, I'm not a consensus building kind of uh, lowest common denominator. As long as we all feel good, it must be good kind of guy. So I, di I didn't think uh, that I would fit well. And I let her know that. And I fought for about a year. I fought off her advances. And finally, I simply acceded to a very simple overture. She said, here's the thing. The, the, the hospital staff, many, most of whom were women at the time and probably still are, um, have a number of guys on their hands that they're deeply unnerved by. And I said, well, what's unnerving about them? Well, she said, they've all had someone die on them recently or someone's dying now. And um, they seem to divide up into two camps. And one of them is uh, belligerent, hostile, aggressive, um, and things of this kind. Yeah. I said, yes. What about the other ones? Oh, she said, they're much worse. And so I was a little taken aback. And, but I also, she also had my attention. And I said, worse how? And she said, oh, they don't say anything at all. So it's a matter of, of course, waiting for, for something untoward to take place. So, so it's on the base of that little nuance that I decided I would take the little job, which was to do a six-week uh, group uh, for these guys. And I didn't have any idea what I was going to do, but I phoned them up. And by the third guy, it became obvious that not one of these guys wanted to be in a group that was only for men. Mm -hmm. which in and of itself was something to take note of. But me, you know, being a relatively quick study then, and perhaps now, um, I, I caught on to this and I said to the third guy, oh, this is going to work out great for you, man. This is, this is your group. And he said, but I just told you. I said, no, no, I understand. But what you'll have in common with all the other guys is that none of you want to be in a group for men. And that's the group it's going to be, a men's group for men who don't want to be in a group for men and uh, somehow I got seven or eight takers off the list that they gave me hmm. and we all showed up on the first night and none of us knew what to do and um, by the third week though it became painfully apparent what the entire enterprise should be devoted to and it was the fact that uh, my realization that they were extraordinarily capable where anger is concerned now, you and I both know that anger in men is deeply discredited now in the West, across the West, as something like it's the, it's the opposite of being a human being, apparently now. And it has no room in, in any kind of cultural life, et cetera, and so on. Well, you know, first of all, anger is a naturally occurring event, and there's many a time when it's utterly not only understandable, but mandatory as long as it's not the only show in town, mm. you know, it's by, there's no question that it's part of a healthy emotional repertoire, but discredited as it's been, 
these guys came into their dying time or the dying time of a loved one with this sort of wicked combination of a heavy reliance upon anger and a deep shame over the fact that they had a lot of anger about these, these dyings that were going on. And it, I realized at some point that they were so good at anger, basically to cover for something that they had very little practice at, and that was the art and the skillfulness of being sad. And this had escaped them entirely by the time I had met them and uh, did not no longer presented itself as something uh, that was either worthy of their attention or something that should be uh, sought after and practiced by them. And you understand why. And, and I believe I did, you know, soon, soon into the process, the project. And it came to this, that anger is very enabling. That's the remarkable thing about it. It's a kind of, it's a kind of high octane uh, enabler. Yeah. Uh, sadness, on the other hand, by comparison, seems to lay you wide open and, um, and, and diminish your capacity to respond. And this is why I said one of these things minus the other is like a one-winged bird, you know, when you're in, in the trenches, in the emotional and spiritual trenches. So, so I realized that, that I had to find some way to give them a way into sadness. Uh, because the circumstances in and of themselves did not guarantee that at all. And they, they dubbed it sad school. That's what they ended up calling the meetings. And it went from something like six weeks to something like 18 months at their insistence with a, a kind of revolving door of uh, attendees. And, and somewhere in there, I was claimed, I guess you would say. And there was something about the nature of dying in the West, in my corner of the West at least, and the utter refusal to die when you are and so on that made such a, a desperate claim upon my attention and my sense of what my purpose was that by the time I agreed to take the gig, um, I, I, my very first dying person <laughs> was a doctor, as it turned out. Hmm. And um, I remember going in, sitting there uh, in his room uh, and having a complete reassurance that I knew what I was doing. It's not to say that I could have told you all of this at the time, but looking back on it now, I know that I was in um, the saddle that was reserved for me. And uh, I, I had a deep understanding of what, was, what I was called upon to do. And that's how it began. In other words, I discovered at least one of the things I was born for. And, uh, you know, kicking and screaming, I found it. Hmm. That's fascinating. I, um, the thing that's really coming up for me in, as you've shared that, thank you so much for sharing that, is um, the idea that, you know, you're sitting in the saddle that you were, you know, that was designed for you. Basically, you are being who you were born to be. That's fascinating because it's, you know, many times like we kind of think we have this innate understanding of what our purpose is and we're meant to know it from the outset and we just sort of live that life. Uh, we're talking a lot about living in this question, but I've also heard um, in one of your, um, one of my favourite talks of yours, it went along the lines of basically how we live our life is actually how we die, you know. So if you live small, you die small. I think I'm directly quoting you. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of finding your purpose, um, but also realising that, you know, it was like you said you were perhaps 60 when you realized that you know this was your work this was the saddle that you know you were meant to be for so can we talk a little bit about 
living in the life that you know fits you know um because a lot of people struggle with things like imposter syndrome in terms of what they're meant to be doing and all this sort of stuff sorry the, the last part we the connection died out a little bit what was the last part the last part was basically a lot of people often struggle with what they're meant what they're doing and how they feel like you know imposter syndrome yeah. for that um I know that, you know, you've reflected that, you know, this has been your calling in terms of this has been the work that you were really meant to be doing. Um, but it also came at quite a later stage through, you know, having gone through so much of life to realise that, you know, your, like, your offering is basically all your work is to support people with, you know, the taboos around death and dying. Well, I think the meaning of your life is a kind of... Um, latter half discovery i mean the first half of your life it seems to be uh the case that you're bumbling around uh finding all kinds of other people's reasons to be alive and other you know assignments <laughs> and um and coming to other people's senses you could say and the somewhere in the proceedings if you're lucky and if you endure long enough and if you're not driven to absolute distraction by by the absence of, of uh, you know, a clear and concise take on what you're doing here, well, maybe, maybe you run out of, you know, all the other possibilities are stripped from you, and the only thing that's left standing is you. I mean, this could well be, I don't mean to make this sound like any kind of a victory march or a heroic journey by, by any stretch, um, but the fact that it came to me in my, I'm going to guess, early to mid-40s, um, is, among other things, a sign that apparently there was a certain degree of readiness that was required of me, which I was neither born with nor came out of school with. And, uh, and that readiness basically earned me um, a bedside seat mm. at the three-ring circus of dying in the West. You see, and I, I would say it deliberately that way, that I had to earn my right to be in on other people's demise because this is not a spectator sport after all neither it is it is it a kind of generic supporting role that you that you are um charged with it, it, because the entire enterprise is determined by the realities of the time and place in which the people are dying in which you are employed to be of some benefit to them and somewhere in there i realized that these dying people were never going to ask of me what I owed to them. What I owed to them was the opportunity to die. You know, I subsequently called the book Die Wise. So that's the word I would use. That they had an obligation not to die well, not to die peacefully, not even to die with dignity. Mm. Let's raise the notion that death and wisdom in some radical way belong together. And that was the marriage I was trying to effect. And there was nobody that was seeking that out, you see. People came to their dying time in no appreciable disturbance from the way they had approached every other minor blip on the horizon of their plans. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely staggering. It's, I mean, the only comparison I can think to make, and I make it as an outsider, as you'll see, is I, I think about a woman recently told that she's pregnant. And... What she does in the following, you know, seven and a half or eight months is to live an a life so undisturbed by this news that she is every um, North American poster child for, you know, personal freedom. 
and that she has no obligation to suddenly change her life fundamentally in terms of eating, drinking, smoking, the obvious ones, and more subtly, you know, sleep and, and, and rest and, and a sense of well-being. You, you understand what I'm saying? Yes. If, if you take the notion that people uh, um, are inherently free and, you know, as this to, to subvert the old phrase and everywhere live in chains. And, and then you challenge this by wondering whether or not our freedom, quote unquote, isn't actually there to serve what comes to us in life rather than to excuse us from what comes to us in life. If you think that thought, and then you, you come to the, the understanding of dying as something that we owe to life, not something that has come to betray or otherwise undo us, then the repertoire is entirely different from the one that you would employ to defend yourself or to maintain a kind of steady-as-she-goes lunacy. Hmm. So this is what I was engaged in constantly. And as I did so, it became more and more clear to me that I wasn't in any way a psychodynamic practitioner or a psychological consultant <laughs> or an inner work or inner child uh, uh, magician. What I was, was a culture worker. Right. That's what hit me, that my principal obligation was my principal, let's say, range of motion, at least kind of psychically, intellectually, and, and even spiritually. My range of motion is in the direction of, uh, of the, the kind of moral order which, which the cultural life asks of us, recommends to us, provides to us, and ultimately tries to employ in us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating because obviously I've been um, even just using the term I've been attracted to your work with Die Wise. You know, is uh, I can feel like how that sounds so weird. Those that I was death, um, but I had some recent loss. Um, I had some really amazing support of the community around me to sort of for me uh, amazing people whose work could support me on the journey of resolving some of the grief um, and the anger. So that's been really profound. But even as we're sharing uh, just little parts of your story now, um, I'm noticing that, you know, you mentioned that, you know, it was at about the age of 40 that you had what you needed in order to facilitate the work that you needed to do. Um, and then obviously um, we're talking about death and getting to that stage. 
the, the you because you're coming down for a talk um, all through up and down the east coast of Australia actually, um, and you're doing Melbourne, Sydney, and it's pretty much this week. I'm um, then you're off to New Zealand and then Queensland and back down from Queensland again. So we've got you for a couple of weeks in Australia, which I'm really excited about. Um, mm-hmm. But the talk's called Coming of Age. Um, mm. which is your new book. So, you know, I think in and around there is a nice little introduction to talk about, you know, what your because coming of age, also a lot of work that you do is based on recently I've been reading the message, which is that elderhood um, and, you know, the lack of elders that we have. Um, what is that? Can you, can you, for those that are listening in for the first time, why is there a lack of elders and what does that really mean? Okay, see if I can narrow this down into something we can actually listen to for in five or seven minute answer. Um, you know, I, it would took me 400 pages to answer that question, but, uh, but no problem. It's, uh, it's a good challenge to have. Well, first of, first of all, in fairness to you, uh, you slightly misquoted the title of the, the book and the, uh, and the uh, endeavors that ensue from it. I actually called the book Come of Age. Uh, not coming of age. Thank you. And it's, and it's a fundamental difference. It's not just a matter of a couple of letters. Mm. And here's why. It's just the same reason I didn't call the book Dying Wise. Mm. Or I didn't call it Die Wisely. Yep. Because in both of these titles, what you have is, um, particularly in the second one, in the Come of Age book, uh, the title is obviously what's called in the trade hortatory. It's not a commonly used word anymore, but it's the same root as the verb to exhort or exhortation. It's a, the, the notion of uh, the hortatory trade is um, a combination, you could say, of a little bit of teaching, a little bit of preaching, quite a bit of pleading, making the case for, and otherwise imploring. That's all in the notion of exhortation. So certainly that's there. In other words, if you were unkind, unkindly disposed towards me, you would say, I'm bossing people around and telling them what to do, which is not inaccurate. Mm. It's, you know, to a certain degree, that's true. Mm. But there's another thrust to the sound of come of age that uh, in days gone by, and I remember some of these days now, that we would use the phrase come of age as an adjectival phrase that that signaled a, a recognition that had deep approval in it, Mm-hmm. deep regard, a considerable degree of respect, and all of it signaled what? That, that whether it was a person or a particular bottle of wine or, or a book's ideas or a work of art, that all of these things, when they first came among us, were, had such a degree of novelty that they were basically, um, they escaped our attention in some fashion. And, and it was a combination of their enduring presence and our continued exposure to them that turned them into something in our lives that had more presence and less allegation in it. And we would have used the expression in the old days, we would say of that person or of that wine or that idea that it has come of age, which is to say it has gained entry and it's, it's earned its place, if you will. And, uh, and nothing further is required of it other than to be itself. So that's not a bad overture to the answer that I w- would have to give you. Um, let's start with the question, what the hell happened mm. that prompt, prompted me to take a couple years out of my life and, and see if I could address myself to this, this thing? Well, um, 
I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you may have used it a time or two, it may have been used upon you a time or two, and certainly the people listening to us would recognize it. And it goes like this, respect your elders. Mm-hmm. Now, the way it's said today, this is a prescription, mm-hmm. okay? It's a prescription for right behavior on the part of somewhat younger people, basically. And um, the, the, the interesting thing about uh, observing this from a cultural point of view is it was not always a prescription. There, were, there was a time when the phrase, respect your elders, was a description, not a prescription. In other words, it was describing uh, observable and chronic behaviors in the general population. Mm. Right? So when, you, when you're saying respect your elders, you were acknowledging the weather, this sort of an aspect of the cultural weather, which is to say that, that one respected one's elders now let's ask the troubling question, why? Well, one answer is, it's not a bad thing to practice at least preemptive respect. That's not a bad way to go through life. It doesn't disable you when it comes to understanding, you know, the, the, the various comings and goings of what you're trying to respect. But to begin with respect is not a bad thing at all. But I'm suggesting here that the old weather of uh, respecting your elders was a two-part formula, and only one part appears in the exhortation. Mm. The, the part that never appears and that nobody talks about, in, at least not in my hearing, is you respect your elders in part because they have carried themselves in a respectable way. Mm. That, that's the second part. Okay, You respect your elders because they're respectable, you see. And, of course, the reason I'm pointing this out to you is the reason it's become a prescription today is because the second half is not a given. It is not a given that older people, by definition of being older people, have conducted themselves in their lives, in the time that they were born to, in the corner of the world that they were born to, in a way that more or less inevitably generates the instinct for respect amongst the people younger than them in whose midst they live. Mm-hmm. And this is a rather um, full-mouthed way of saying the following. Something has happened of such seismic consequence. I'm not sure how old it is, mm-hmm. um, but at the very least, it's very clear now, and not just to younger people, that older people, when they were middle-aged people or younger people, had the opportunity to live a, a kind of life that would signal to the people not yet born that they had conducted themselves as if the not yet born people would eventually be born, would eventually be children, and would eventually inherit the world that these early and middle-aged and finally older people would hand off to them when the time came, there would be a sign of a willingness to live as if the unborn were certainly going to come among them. So what I can point your, your attention to, sadly, goes like this. When many, many older people come to the teachings I do about this subject, and sadly, and but markedly, what they do is they expect me to recognize, 
and reward and imbue their lives with a kind of automatic stamp of approval, wherein their inalienable elderhood is recognized, conferred upon them, and they're thanked for their, you know, countless decades of active duty, etc. and so on. Excuse me a second. <coughs> so, here's what I'm here to tell you. And this, this will not go down well for at least some people listening, probably. Mm-hmm. But it goes like this. In the days when the people who are asking me to recognize them as elders, today, next week, when I come to your country, I'm, I have no reason to believe it won't be there in some fashion. When it was their turn to occupy those positions of relative responsibility, influence, and consequence in their workplaces, mm-hmm. when they were beginning to approach their peak income-generating years, when they had positions that had, and, and let's be fair and acknowledge that a lot of people's jobs are not of the kind of global influence scale. At least not overtly, they're not. Mm. But, but subtly, it's not inconceivable to see your work as a kind of subtle consequence generating event and to take some responsibility for conducting yourself in such a way that subtle consequences will emanate from the things you do and from the things you don't do, the things you refuse to do, the things that you don't have the stomach for, et cetera, and so on. Mm-hmm. So you have these, these people in their early and, and middle age and so on, and they're in this period in their lives, and you ask a simple question of them at that time, and it's this. How did you conduct yourself given how the world was? Not given what your family wanted from you, not your personal goals and so on, but given the state of the world, how did you conduct yourself? And can we tell that you were governed in some fashion by a kind of um, almost involuntary awareness that caused a lot of heartache, that we were entering into a time of you know, considerable turbulence and un- unmistakable downward um, momentum. The answer is very clear because the downward momentum is in part a consequence of their unwillingness to live as such. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not laying all of the blame of every integer of ecological disaster on the, mi- on the sort of middle class of your country or mine or the United States or Western Europe and so on, saying it all comes down to their buying habits. Mm-hmm. Although you could make some case that it's certainly in there. It's supported, yeah, for sure. Right? Okay. So what's happening now is younger people are being asked to inherit a world and to inherit a, a youth, a, a, a young time in their lives, that literally bears no resemblance to the world as it was when I was young. Sure. Utterly no resemblance at all. Mm-hmm. And that has changed in the course of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, older people bear some responsibility for that massive eclipse of the sense of possibility, the sense of personal agency, and these things are in desperate eclipse. Um, I asked my son the other day when I sat with breakfast, he's 31 or two, and I said to him, uh, when you look into the future, what do you think about? 
what do you how does it how does it how does it look to you how does it sit with you this kind of thing hmm. and you know what he said to me he said i don't think about it very much and you know the answer that answer is palpably not true it's a kind of coping strategy you don't think about something because you've already decided doing so doesn't pay and the way you decided that is because when you used to think about it it was um it was very difficult to continue mm. so it's a kind of adaptive strategy that uh well it speaks for itself it seems so all of this then is to say somewhere in the mix the willingness of people to live as if they will be old people one day mm. as if they will be obliged to occupy the position and the office of elderhood and as if they would be in some way i'm going to use the word answerable to younger people this is a little different from accountable mm. but I, I i'm saying this it it comes to this that we all might live our lives i know you're thinking god almighty this is a long answer man but you know it was a big question yeah um but the, here's the last part of it for now that uh, it seems to be the obligation of all of us to proceed as if the day will come perhaps in the not too distant future when someone one half or one third your age will come to you and they'll have two questions for you and they're very simple questions which are not easy to answer and the first one in some version or other will go like this when you were my age did you know what was happening okay there's not a lot of elaboration necessary because it's quite palpable where that question's coming from and the answer the only authentic answer not the pleasing one not the comforting one but the authentic one has to include the following you know when i was your age technology and information being what it was anyone who wanted to know what was going on could have known mm. this is beyond any reasonable doubt yep but the truth of the matter is not everybody did want to know and so not everybody did mm. and for what i can tell things may not have changed so enormously since those days <clears throat> the second question that follows from that is so what did you do and these two questions basically are the proscenium arch under which your elderhood function will unfold or will shrivel mhm mm yeah makes a lot of sense it's very profound what's coming up for me in this juncture of the conversation is <clears throat> the part that ignorance plays in our human condition and how much we lean in on that and how much we lean away from that you know it's um <clears throat> it seems to be embedded as part of out of sight out of mind but you've also flagged that um you know it's uh that is what what's coming up for me is that it is pure ignorance that we're leaning in on in terms of knowing that we are one day going to be able and in and around that like being ignorant um and putting things out of sight out of mind i also look at the trend of you know there is so there is even the ability to the people that we could ask these questions of collectively as people we tend to put the people in nursing homes women care um that we you know there is wisdom there potentially um for people that may be able to answer these two questions well 
um, but we seem to ostracize them from our day-to-day life and living so that the younger generation can't connect to them and realize that this is a question that is a worth having we don't have the opportunity to ask that question because we've removed a lot of the people from our immediate environment um, we live in this kind of um, mildly pleasant ignorance um, to, uh, disassociated from even just growing up um, even just to come of age and be old um, so yeah this this dance around ignorance um, do you think that is just part of the human condition um, despite it necessarily obviously something we need to address well you know I'm I'm not a good generalist so uh, I'm very loath to make observations across all of humankind across human history across cultural difference and linguistic difference and so on you know I've I've couple of times mentioned to you in passing in my corner of the world that kind of qualification is you know I would use that again and say well it's very clear eh, that that not every culture in the world offloads its old people mm. obviously not I mean there are, there are a number of places where this is not true but but you begin to notice everywhere where the information technology it makes its inroads mm also has this kind of dismissive orientation to what preceded it. Mm. In other words, there's something about the technology that, <clears throat> that enforces a kind of wicked etiquette vis-a-vis everything that preceded you. It makes it, it makes it appear something in the order of irrelevant at best or obsolete or past its day. And this can be a person, of course, this can be an idea. This can be a range of human experiences. And as soon as you come into a time, which you have certainly come into, where the only, quote, truth is a personal truth, as soon as this is true, then apparently all of these truths are age-specific things, mm. you see. And if they're age-specific things, what use could, could there be to an old life? Mm. See, I'm, I'm, I'm inhabiting a middle-aged or a younger person's uh, body long enough to wonder that out loud, you see? Yeah. So how about this? We have, when I used to work in the death trade, we were routinely asked by people how much longer they had to live or their, their loved one would ask, how much longer does my father have to live and so on. And unfortunately, the doctors would basically misrepresent things and say, it's not really knowable, which was categorically not the case. Hmm. We routinely knew how much longer they had to within a week or even a few days. <clears throat> Not because we were brilliant, but because we had a, a certain sort of hip pocket calculus that we used to figure it out. Mm. And you, I think you're going to see why this pertains to what we're talking about momentarily. Mm. What we would say was we observed the changes, you know, the symptomatic changes and so on, the progress of the disease and so on. But the other thing we observed is the rate at which those changes changed Mm -hmm. and that's a different order of observation you see okay so if you use this and apply it at the level of culture not at the level of individual um, um, cancer development but at the level of culture you begin to see something that's profoundly unwelcome i think and it goes like this we're buffeted at two layers now one of them is simply the changes that are surrounding us in the technology uh, that's around and that's informing our days. 
but we're also deeply unnerved by the rate at which that change is taking place because the change is accelerating. And in that sense, it feels a bit like a runaway train. And if you stop and think about this artificial intelligence stuff for five minutes, you know, you can run out of the room screaming and you can think to yourself, you know, Orwell and his ilk had it right a long time ago. Right. Okay. So you take this and then you make a simple um, observation at the cultural level. Here it goes. We are in a time of increasing uh, rapidity of change. At the same time, there we have an increased diagnosis in the neurological disorders that affect, among other things, older people's capacity to remember. Mm-hmm. Neurodegenerative disease is on the increase. At exactly the same time, when individual human memory is becoming more and more obsolete because it's being replaced by pocket gizmos and by Google and by uh, uh, Wikipedia and so forth. You know, Nick Cave, bless his bones, he's got a wonderful line from one of his songs. He says, uh, Wikipedia is heaven if you don't want to remember no more. It's, an, it's just such an astute observation, you see? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm suggesting to you that the rate of change that we're surrounded by in the culture generally is having its consequence individually mm. in terms of a breakdown of the neurological capacities. And it's not just affecting old people. It's affecting young people in a similarly devastating way. I don't know if this is true where you live, but certainly here we have an increased diagnosis of attention deficit disorders amongst young people, particularly in the school system, right? Okay, this is happening at exactly the same time that the rate of change is accelerating so rapidly that it frankly beggars, I would even say dares you to find a way to care about what's happening. Mm. It really fundamentally undermines the, the merit of investing yourself deeply in the current order long enough to figure out how it got this way, never mind what you might do about it rehabilitatively, you see. Yep. So, so in other words, I'm suggesting that the very young and the very old are kind of have become now can- canaries in the coal mine, to yep. use that old phrase. Absolutely. And they're kind of our sentinel species. And they're actually, they're, their afflictions are signs. Yeah, profound. Um, as you were sharing that, you know, there was this distinct realization um, I've been harboring for a little while, which is, you know, um, I'm I'm son of an immigrant family that came to Australia from India and uh, in my culture, in India. Um, you know, you elders the, the even the, the way we lived at home was very different. Um, you lived in your grandfather's house. Children didn't leave live in their mother's and father's house and leave when they were. You know, between the ages of 18 and 25, um, you would live in your grandfather's house and then all the children and then their grandchildren. So all the grandchildren would be living under the same roof. In a, in, so there's three tiers of generation. Um, and I noticed when, I, when my father migrated, he spent a lot of his time on the phone to his parents um, in his downtime. And... Some part of me looks in from my lens, which is, you know, growing up with the sound of the internet um, all around. 
and realizing that he didn't have the internet to answer his question. He didn't have technology to support his way through life the way that I did. He had different technology. Um, but when it came down to simple things like, you know, what should I do with, let's just come up with a really lame example, but like, okay, I've got a, I've got a silk shirt. How do I wash that? You know, this is a very simple example. Mm-hmm. Or his mother, right? So he would contact his mother. There would be a, a, a relationship there. Whereas now I, I have never asked, I've never, con- I've learned how to use a washing machine. I've learned how to repair a washing machine through basically the internet. I've never asked my father how, what, how I need to wash or treat a particular garment. Now it seems mundane, seems like a foolish example, but the reality is I just, not to me. It doesn't. Yeah. I distinctly remember how important my, my, my grandmother felt in my father's life and how connected she was to him and what he was doing every day and what was going on for me. And she remembered all that. And this is what we're talking about with memory and the internet. And I think it's really profound the way you've articulated these are the canaries in the coal mine. The fact that we have so much attention to disorder and the fact that amnesia is like this thing, which is, you know, we're consistently handing off parts of our cognitive um, burden or perceived burden onto technology to support us to, in this day in society to the best of our ability, but it is coming at a cost of, yeah, our, our, our neural capacities and our well-being mentally that way. Well, in, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And <clears throat> I can tell you, you used the word burden. And uh, it reminded me of when I was working in the death trade, the fear of becoming a burden was the principal reason that proper fear, I should say, that prompted dying people to ask us to euthanize them. How about that? I mean, that's about as in the trenches as you can get. Of all the reasons to want to hasten your death, the prospect of being, of having your family obliged to care for you was the principal thing that drove you to, uh, to kill yourself before you could die. I mean, that's real. I'm, I lived that every week when I was in the death trade. And, and what I'd suggest, and, I, and in fact, I'm taking my cue from your example here, is that burden is one of the ways by which we know we're there. If we are, quote unquote, burdened by the needs or even the presence of another person, it's one of the signs of our existence. It's one of the signs, not only that we're present, but at some level, apparently, we're at least temporarily Uh, mandatory Hmm. and you could go one step further from burden and imagine it something like this this is a true story and it really happened too I had a guy um, doing an interview with me like this and he said um, he said now I don't know if you've heard this and it's going to sound like science fiction to you Uh, and of course it's probably too late for you he said (laughs) but uh, they're working on a serum he said and uh, when they finalize the, you know, the fine tuning of the serum uh, and you take it, <clears throat> you won't have to die. That was his characterization. You won't have to die. And, um, and there was a long pause after he set the question up. And then he said, so my question to you is, if I take the serum and I don't die, what will I miss? Which was an enormously achieved question because the degree of imaginative reconstruction of what it means to die was was breathtaking and beautiful and really asked of me something you know something quite uh, remarkable in response and i said to him well i said with all due respect i think the question has the emphasis on the wrong syllable i think 
I think really your the question would be this: if you take the serum, it's not that you won't have to die; it's that you won't be able to. You see, in other words, reimagine your dying as a capacity, mm. not an affliction. And if you do that, then you realize your dying is something that asks things of you, rather than doing something to you. And it's and it's occupies a, a fundamental place in the moral order of human life. But for all of that, the question might be, if you take the serum and you're not able to die, what then will the rest of us miss? Not you, the rest of us, because of course we all learn about these things from every death that precedes our own. Do we not? Of course we do. Mm -hmm. How else to learn it? I mean, you can read Die Wise to the Cows Come Home, but if you're not in on the the slow moving death of a fellow human half a dozen times before yours comes around the chances are you come to your death as an amateur so so i remembered that interview and years went by last year or the year before i'm listening to an interview with this fellow wrote the brief history of humanity or i i can't remember exact title but it was a blockbuster all over the english-speaking world and so on and he had a new book about the near future this was what the interview is about. And he said, the, the interviewer asks him, so what do you think is coming next? Or, or what's, what's coming? And he said, well, he said, they're working on a serum and it's going to sound like science fiction to you. And I thought to myself, man, I've heard this before. And he said, and judging by your voice, he said, it's probably too late for you. But still, <laughs> they're, working, they're working on a serum. And when you take the serum, <laughs> you won't have to die. Exactly the same characterization. And this is as a million seller author, right? With exactly the same spell on his tongue hmm. as the other fellow. So then there was a pause and the interviewer said, so what will that mean if we don't die? And the author said, well, it means that we'll be divine. That's the word that he used. And uh, it really caught my attention. And I, I began to think about it and it occurred to me, of course, because in this rendering, his, his understanding of divinity includes immortality, as most people's understanding of divinity would. But if you, if you pursue this, the, the tale of that particular snake, you come to this realization. Rather than wonder whether or not we're indeed going to be divine if we take this serum, rather ask yourself, what is it that makes us human? Mm-hmm. And one of the answers that comes directly out of this little example is, what makes us human is the capacity for endings, mm. not, not the capacity to defy them, but the capacity to obey them. Endings, frailties, limits. That's where our humanity has always appeared, mm. see? And it's miraculously, it's, you could say in a kind of alchemical way, it can be when we're at our quote unquote best. You know, one more idea about this and I'll turn it over to you. We have a word human in the English language. <clears throat> Everybody would say very quickly, you know, human. And people would say, yeah, 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 I know. So here's the question. We have the word human, and then we put an E on the end of the word. We have a different word. Yeah. Okay. What's the difference between these two things besides the E? And I suggest to you it's this. Human is the word that we have gathered about ourselves, particularly in the Enlightenment West. Mm-hmm. to characterize a, a kind of sequence of inalienable characteristics 
which we cannot lose track of. We cannot, they cannot be rescinded or withdrawn. Um, no one can take them away from us. Our humanness is our prized possession, or at least that's the allegation. Why then do we have an adjective humane if being human is inevitable? Mm-hmm. And the answer is there's a closet or a covert realization that being, in hu- being human is not an inevitable consequence of having been born with the capacity to be human. And it seems to be in the order of things that humans are capable of the most extraordinary inhumanity imaginable. And history, of course, bears this out. So we have this word humane as a kind of out clause, wherein it acknowledges the fact that us being human is not really an an inalienable um, bundle of um, characteristics that we own that in fact we dip in and out of it with maddening regularity. And this brings us back to the question of uh, elderhood long enough to, to ask this. Where does our understanding of elderhood comes from? Today, it seems to come from our understanding of geriatrics, of all things. Well, here's the problem, though. If elderhood was synonymous with agedness, then at least in my country and the United States, and I'm guessing your country too, we would be, all of us would be awash in the inevitable uh, majesty and sagacity that comes with elderhood. Why? Because there's so many geezers around. That's why. <laughs> there's a burgeoning population of, yes. Right? Okay. That's what it should mean. And it should mean that the older the population is, the more sustainable and sustaining the life that ensues from their presence should be. Mm-hmm. Which, in which case, we should be the absolute and utter envy of every human generation that preceded us mm. because our, our, our capacity for wisdom is virt- borders on the unbearable. Mm-hmm. And demonstrably, the reverse is true, that we have more older people than we've ever had, and the moderating and guiding presence of elderhood is in such, such deep disarray as to border on... Um, um, it's AWOL. It's gone AWOL. It's... It's simply, it's so scarce that it's become a rumor yeah. more than a description of anything. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. There's this um, piece that you were talking to, basically, which is, you know, I, well, you were talking to it, and I really want to acknowledge it, is, you know, you just mentioned that our capacity to end, you know, our capacity to live out, to I'm going to use the word fulfillment um, is something that your work has really supported me personally with. Um, You know, it was, I often think about, you know, uh, living a life. Um, It's just part of my personal development type of genome, DNA kind of um, forward thinking mind. Um, And I often try and for a while there, I was orienting, orientating myself towards happiness and, I realize that that is not necessarily, you know, the strongest orientation to have, even though it is the most perhaps uh, shiny one. Um, Since then, it's been more about fulfillment. And I've been trying to work on fulfillment. And that is, you know, where purpose comes in a lot. And that's where some of the earlier questions in this this came from. How did you know that this was your path? Um, But in and around fulfillment, I realized that listening to more and more that I listen to you, and this is something I just want to share is, 
what I've come to realize is that, you know, there is like a, every tea has an optimal steeping time, you know, and mm -hmm. at a certain point, the tea bag must come out of the cup, you know, for the tea to be what it must be, you know, and I've come to realize that that is the process of what I now see as, you know, the next iteration of, of death and dying and, you know, like letting, like removing the tea bag from the cup and there's a fulfilling it's almost like prophetic in that, you know, that is now the tea. That is now the story. That is now the life that was. Um, there's an interesting couple of things I'd like to try and weave into one question if possible um, or one sort of discourse from you on following the question, which is, you know, there's this thing that we're doing which is where we're taking more and more medication. I've heard you directly talk to this to prolong dying Mm -hmm. rather than avoiding the fulfillment of what death can be. That's the first part to it. And then the second part is what that death is, what you were talking to is we're, we're robbing our younger generations the opportunity of seeing like death fulfilled um, mm -hmm. because people aren't embodying the grace or the wisdom really, the wisdom to die knowing that they're dying and knowing that that is the seal on the life that then permeates into the awareness of the, the next generation and forms their process of the same thing. Leonard Cohen. <clears throat> I mean, we, I should just stop after his name because uh, so many things ensue from him and his work. He's got a gorgeous line apropos of this. He says, behold the gates of mercy in ordinary space and none of us deserving the cruelty or the grace. Okay. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful uh, way of coming down from the victory march, the super highway of personal fulfillment, and, uh, and reacquainting ourselves with the notion that our personal fulfillment is a consequence and not a cause. Mm. It's a consequence of other endeavors, particularly, you know, the old adage, and it's a very useful one, that how... How rich can you be if there are poor people in your midst? Mm. I mean, your, your capacity to be rich in every meaningful sense of the term is predicated on you, the, you, the most vulnerable aspects of your population and how they're doing and, and how you are with them and so on. So, um, yeah, of course, if you, if you extend the lifespan, and there's no if, that's exactly what's happening. Mm and you mess with people's capacity to die on schedule, and then you forbid the, the, the understanding that there's such a thing as your turn to die, your time to die, all of this becomes negotiable, and then you mistake this as for an act of love, where you oblige the dying person to hang on and try one more round of chemotherapy and all the rest, because they owe it to the people around them who are not ready for them to die yet. Mm. With, without anybody looking up from this ridiculous passion play and saying, well, look, get ready because it's coming kind of thing. And understand that as the moral uh, imperative. Not the, the moral imperative simply because we have the technology to mess with the lifespan doesn't confer upon that a moral necessity. And yet I saw this over and over again in the death trade. If we can, we should becomes the 11th commandment of the enterprise. Mm. If we can, we should. Well, we're in a position now where there's no if. We can, and we are. And the consequences have a direct bearing upon the status of old people in our midst. 
How's that for a connection? And it goes like this. When you mess with frailties of all kinds and you banish the, not only the ultimate frailty, dying, and you, you prolong it insufferably, one of the direct consequences of this is that there's no longer any merit to enduring. There's no merit to learning the ins and outs of frailty, of, of properly submitting yourself to them. Mm. And this all becomes like a sucker's game. Mm. And then it's no surprise that those people most ruled by physical limitation are the people who are most left out of the social calculation of worth and merit. Mm. You see why? Because the limits that have now been, you know, officially sneered at by the powers that be are only making a firm claim upon the very young and the very old. And everybody else gets a pass as they work on ever more improving, you know, drugs in Switzerland and elsewhere uh, to free us from the obligation to be bound by these things. Mm. And what does your body become when you are, when you are sustained in this notion that you have no obligation to ebb? And the answer is your, your body becomes an encumbrance, not a treasure, not something loaned to you and entrusted to you for a short period of time that you might properly understand that it's, it's a little bit of the world that's entrusted to you to take care of. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what your body is. And its limits are the exact same kinds of limits that are around us ecologically. And those limits are not there to bedevil us. They're there to implore us to engage our humanity most deeply. The limits of the world around us is another chance for us to get it right where being a human is concerned. And if you keep pushing the limits back, then you make every limit and exercise in vague tolerance at best and intolerance becomes the repertoire the unwillingness to go along with limits and endings that are inconvenient to you and this serves more and more the self-aggrandizing self-improvement you know self-regulating self-madeness that made has made america with both the envy and the ridicule of the world at the same moment. Mm. See, so, so this is a lot to say in one sentence or two, and I know we're at the end of our time here. And, uh, you know, one of the things that suggests is, well, we probably needed at least another hour. <laughs> we'll follow it up for sure, for sure. <laughs> um, there's, um, yeah, I think the, the, as you're sharing this, one of the biggest takeaways, and I think, you know, just a, a very humble reminder at the end of the conversation is, my personal takeaway has been that, you know, our conversation through elderhood um, and especially the way you're describing death now is, you know, death is something sacred. You know, it is something deeply, deeply sacred. And it's just mirroring the fact that life is something deeply, deeply sacred. Um, and there's just a call to remind us to reflect on that as well. Um, I just want to... Uh, tie out with you know I think you've you've answered this question quite a few times in quite a few places um just for the listeners of the inspired evolution just to know that this is um I think this would be really nice for the energy is you know your relationship with death I think many people would think that you know from the outset that you know having 
spent so much time with people that are transitioning and spent so much time with, you know, uh, talking and conversing and writing books on the matter, you would be quite at home with it. Um, is that the truth? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. Yes, routinely I've been asked, I mean, the math goes simply like this. So you've seen a lot of death. Yes, I have. And this, somewhere in there you must have seen your own death a time or two. Yes, I have. And so you must be good with it then, as if chronic exposure to something invariably makes you more able where it's concerned. Yeah. I mean, if that's true, we should be geniuses at global warming any time now. <laughs> okay. Okay, so my answer is that I give with, with no cynicism, you know, at all, no sneering at all, is this. There was something in my formal encounter with my own demise. Mm that did two things to me at the same time. It absolutely broke my heart and it's never mended and it never will mend and it will never be as it once was. And along with that brokenheartedness came an enormous love of being alive. And those two things I understand to be unidentical twins. And where you find one, you're very likely to find the other engaged, you see? So I, I say to these people, well, I found life to be habit-forming, actually, and I have no, quote, intention of accepting my death. I mean, why should I? It's not that I don't know it. It's not that I don't respect it. I have an enormous respect for it, but I have no interest in prompting it. And, and I would rather be informed by its influence than be then run screaming for the hills towards an alleged life-affirming orientation. So, so it, for me, it comes to this. And this is going to sound like it comes from mythic territory, and, and probably it does. Mm -hmm. My imagination tells me this, that there's such a thing as gods, you know, in the plural with capital G on every one of them. Mm -hmm. And let's imagine that the frailties and the limits that I was talking about earlier are in the realm of being human. And let's imagine that the gods themselves don't seem to participate in these limits in the way that we do. They don't seem to be afflicted by them or, or to be the bearers of them. This seems to be uniquely a human thing. And this is the way it occurs to me to say is that what the, what the gods did when they participated in conjuring us is they entrusted us with limits, something that they did not entrust to themselves. Hmm. To me, that's an extraordinary reversal of understanding a limit as something that cramps your style. Mm -hmm. What limit really is, is the opportunity for your style finally to appear. Mm. See? So, so I, I, I find that enormously restoring. Mm -hmm. that, and, if, and if it's not true, well, it should be true. And so I'm going with it as a kind of personal theology mm -hmm. that the gods have entrusted limits to humans perhaps because they, as gods, couldn't quite carry them. A little too burdensome for gods, but right up a human being's alley. Hmm. Wow, that will inspire my evolution. <laughs> so for those tuning in, I, um, I just want to remind you guys, there's an amazing opportunity to have this conversation further. As you know, Stephen is pretty much an open book. He has written books, very easy to communicate with. Um, and he's doing author readings, Come Off Age. Um, he's coming up and down Melbourne, Sydney. He's off to New Zealand. And that is basically, I think the dates are from the 
26th of April, he's in Australia, all the way through to early um, mid-May. So he's going across the pond to New Zealand for a little bit and then he'll be back across to Queensland and then working his way down from Queensland back towards New South Wales before he heads off to the UK and says goodbye to us. Um, But as you can see, there's a lot to be talked about here and I'm looking forward to having another conversation in the future in a deeper podcast. Um, But, you know, I feel like we could probably talk about this forever and ever and ever. So I'm really excited to when you are coming down to having this conversation um, again and learning a lot more about this. And uh, while I'm on that note, I just want to thank you obviously for coming to Australia, but also thank you, you know, for a lot of the work that goes into, you know, I know that, you know, we can have these glamorous podcast conversations, but, you know, on the back of that, there was a lot of time spent with people that are processing, passing, and a lot of that probably wasn't glamorous, you know? Um, Mm. Yeah, you know, so I'm really grateful for the work you've, you know, who you are and who you've shown up in life and just following that path. And then obviously today and your time and energy and wishing you all the best for the very forward coming future in uh, in Australia. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. So, you know, you're very, you're very kind to imagine that anything I could come up with would be something that you'd like to align your show with in some way. And that could be possibly useful to somebody who accidentally overhears us while they're doing the laundry. (laughs) Hopefully they're reminded to call their parents about which softener to use. (laughs) Right. Unless they are the parents and that would be great too. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Hey tribe, thanks for tuning in to another fun, enlightening episode of the Inspired Evolution. I've been loving all the feedback and personal stories of love, uh, health and growth. Your feedback and stories are incredibly welcome. The easiest way to connect with me is via my website, which is www.amrit-sandu.com. You can leave me a message or a comment. It's one of my highest values to connect, so I love to connect and love to hear from you. You can also find me on Facebook, Amrit Sandu. And if the content has been resonating with you, you can help the Inspired Evolution out in a big way by liking the YouTube channel, subscribing to the Inspired Evolution, or the Facebook page, like that please, at the Inspired Evolution, or by leaving a review on iTunes if you're on an Apple device. And also, if the Inspired Evolution episodes are inspiring an evolution within you, or you can feel the inspiration is valuable for your team to evolve to the next level, you can head on over to www.amrit-sandu.com to see how the Inspired Evolution can help you and your team thrive. Much love, tribe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 